let's pray as we look at the scripture this morning. Father, <clears throat> your words are words of life. They give us direction. They reveal your heart. They reveal our heart. They help us know about you and about us and the remedies you provide for life on the downside here on planet Earth, as we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, Father, help us to hear each one of us what you have to say to us. Help us take away just what you mean us to and to apply it. Help us to hear your word, Lord, and to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember last time we finished up Daniel 5? And Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king, bit the dust, had a, had a wild night, and that was his last, and the Medo-Persians came in. And so, if you remember from Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile king of Babylon, had a dream, and in that dream he saw this metallic statue that represented the four major Gentile powers that would be coming. Babylon was the first, so with the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, we begin looking at the second great Gentile power. That's Medo-Persia. And the first half of Daniel, remember we talked about this when we started an interesting book. It's cut in half and then cut in half again. So as we go through chapter 6, we're ending the first half of the book. And the first half is the stories, basically, that gives us the great Bible stories that kids grow up knowing about, the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. The second half... Uh, may in some ways be a little more tedious. It's a little more uncharted territory because it's more prophetic visions and dreams. It gets a little more down and dirty, we might say, a little more difficult sometimes to understand what we're supposed to be getting out of it. But we'll be finishing up chapter 6 in the next few weeks. And as we do, think about those famous words in Othello that I was thinking about the other day. I'm kidding, I'm no Shakespeare guy. But this was in a quotable book. It says, beware, my lord, of jealousy. We could insert the word envy. Beware, my lord, of jealousy or envy. It is the green-eyed monster which mocks the meat it feeds on. Jealousy, envy, greed mocks the person it's destroying. And we'll think about that as we read through these first five verses of Daniel chapter 6. At verse 1, it seemed good to Darius the new king, to appoint 120 satraps, administrators, over the kingdom. They would be in charge of the whole kingdom. For what it's worth, there's a little bit of confusion about who this Darius actually is. You know, archaeology over the last 200 years or so has turned up lots of stuff out of the Middle East and the Far East. Um, kings, Kings' houses and tablets and stelas, lots of information. Still a little quizzical over who Darius is. Uh, Actually, at this time, Cyrus is the great king of the Medo-Persian Empire. Some people think Darius is another name for Cyrus. I I personally don't think that's it. Others think that this is actually a guy named Gabaru, who was a Median general, who took the city of Babylon and then helped reign for a short period of time. I suspect that's more likely. Regardless, though, they've just taken over the Babylonians' empire, and so Darius is wisely cutting up the empire into 120 pieces that he'll have an administrator or a local ruler over those provinces. Verse 2, it says, and over those, over those 120, he's going to have three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, the three commissioners, and that the king might not suffer loss. Remember, we've talked, these guys were shrewd. I mean, they were no dummies, these guys that were ruling the world a couple thousand to 3,000 years ago. 
they were wisely dissecting their kingdoms and giving authority to local leaders and then having other administrators oversee them. And the king wanted to make sure that his taxes were coming in on time, that he wasn't suffering loss, that the kingdom was being run smoothly. He's also wisely included Daniel. You remember under Belshazzar, this unwise king, he didn't use the wisest guy in his kingdom, Daniel. We saw that the queen mother had to bring in Daniel and say, this is the guy that you need to be listening to. But Daniel is wisely recruited again. He's been sitting somewhere on the sidelines under Belshazzar, brought back in under Darius, and he's appointed as one of these three commissioners. So under the king, probably under a high king, and then Darius, we've got these three commissioners. So these are the key guys in the kingdom, and each of them, if it's divided up evenly, is responsible to account for one-third of those 120 local rulers. Verse 3 says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Remember, Daniel's old. He's been around a long time. But here he is again, brought into prominence, brought into leadership, and he's distinguishing himself again as an old man. And it says, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. You know, if we try and quantify this, to say that someone has an extraordinary spirit is one thing, but what does that look like? How do you quantify what is an extraordinary spirit? We're going to go back to chapters 1 and 2 briefly, but do you remember in chapter 1, verse 17, it says that God gave them, Daniel and his three buddies, it says God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood visions and dreams. Those were quantities, if you will, gifts that God had sovereignly given them. So if we're saying, well, what's an extraordinary spirit? On one hand, it probably means that it was this divine gift of knowledge and understanding given by God to Daniel and his fellows. But also in chapter 2, verse 14, it says at one instance, this is related to a dream being given and Daniel uh, being called in. It says, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. On one hand, you've got this picture that God sovereignly gave these gifts of understanding and abilities, knowledge, to Daniel and his fellows. But on the other hand, you see Daniel exercising wisdom and discretion. And this seemed to be the pattern of his life. And it's these two things, I think, that seem to go hand in hand if we're going to quantify Daniel's extraordinary spirit. Uh, One of these is, remember back at verse 8 in chapter 1, we said the whole book of Daniel hinged on this one verse. Daniel made up his mind. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel drew a line in the sand and said, I will not defile myself. For anyone's sake, I will remain true to God most high. So Daniel had made up his mind. That was his responsibility. And then the second, which we've already mentioned, is that God sovereignly chose to honor Daniel with these gifts of understanding, wisdom, ability to interpret. He gave those things simply because he chose to. He gave Daniel things simply because God himself chose to. If we say, well, what was the response to Daniel's success? Look at the first half of verse 4 in chapter 6. It says, the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. So here's Daniel, the old wise Jewish exile, at work in another king's administration, 
doing well, and now others hear that he is going to be tapped on the shoulder and put over all the rest of the rulers. And the response is, his fellow administrators seek to find some ground of accusation against him. And I think to myself, what is the problem? Why are they trying to find fault with Daniel? And this is where I think Othello's quote comes up. It's the green-eyed monster of envy. It's the green-eyed monster of envy. And remember that greed on one hand, greed can be just personal, just related to me. I can be greedy for things. I can say, apart from anyone else, I want more food, I want more wealth, I want bigger, brighter, better, etc. Envy seems, though, to latch on. I want something because someone else has it. I envy or I covet. You know, in the Ten Commandments, don't covet. Don't have this evil desire for what God has given to someone else. That's the thought here. And I think that's the problem with these other administrators. Think about these guys that are planning or attempting to plan Daniel's demise. These are not paupers in the street looking up at the lofty halls of power and wealth at Daniel and saying, oh, if I could only have... These are his fellows. These are his peers. These are guys who have what Daniel has. And it's not that if he's made one step up, how much more wealth or power is he going to have than those three? Some but not a lot. It's not as if he's going to have all that much more. It's just that he'll have some more. And they don't like it. And envy's at work. Envy, this destructive beast, is at work. And as we're going to see with these guys, as you know, if you've read the story, you better be careful because uh, envy and greed are evil monsters that will destroy those who play with them in the end. Proverbs 11.6 says, The righteousness of the upright will deliver them. And in this story, that's going to be Daniel. But the treacherous will be caught by their own greed or their own envy. And as we'll see, that'll bear true in the lives of these administrators. Now, as always, it's easy to look at the story and point your finger at someone else, isn't it? And say, they've got a problem. But think about this for you and I. Remember we said that God gave Daniel wisdom and knowledge. So these were things that God simply chose to just lay a load on Daniel of these positive qualities. Think of your life and mine, though, instead of Daniel's for a minute. Think of all the ways that your life is predetermined by what is given apart from what you do. Think of what you've been given. Now, if I think about myself or you or any of us in this room... We're born in a time not of our choosing. Historically, you and I are here, not 100 years ago and not 100 years from now. We're born in a time not of our choosing. We're born to a family not of our choosing. The height we get is given to us. The weight you have is your own, I'm afraid. Your eyesight, your eye color isn't, isn't yours to choose, or your hair color. Or maybe it is, your hair color is yours to choose. But you come, you come with all these things God has given us. We didn't choose them. He just gave them to us. Some of us are taller. Some of us are smarter. Some of us are prettier. Some of us are handsomer, etc., etc. You and I don't choose those things. They're just given. We don't choose them. Think about even in your life, though, as you and I go along, lots of things that you and I experience qualitatively, quantitatively, are based on some decisions we make, and the scripture is clear about that. We sow certain kinds of things, we get certain kinds of things. We invest wisely, we tend to get good, good things in the end. But also there are things that are simply outside our control. 
So sometimes the place you live, geography, or the neighborhood, or the house you live in, the finances you enjoy or don't enjoy, the neighborhood you live in, the job you have, the esteem you have or don't have, many times those things are all outside our control. And some people have more, and some people have less. And envy is always a potential. Or then even think as a Christian, you get saved, you believe on the Lord, you're going to heaven. And that's all great, but you know what? Even in the church, there's more and there's less, isn't there? You read 1 Corinthians 12, and it says that when you become a Christian, God the Holy Spirit sovereignly chooses to give you gifts or enablings. And he says you don't choose them, he chooses for you. So then in two different verses it says he distributes to each one as he wills. He places you in the body as he desires. He doesn't even ask you what kind of spiritual gift you want. He talks about praying about some of these things later. But you're zapped by his discretion at his will. So in other words, all of us in this life, we're kind of given a role to play. We're kind of set in this life story at God's choosing and at his discretion. And we have a faithfulness part to play on our end, as we've seen with Daniel. He was faithful. But so much in his life was simply dispensed and determined by God. And that's true for you and I. A lot of this stuff isn't our choosing. It's God's choosing. It's God's choosing. So there's a host of things we don't determine. There's always temptation to be discontent with what God has given you versus, or in contrast, what he's given someone else. Always. Some guy named Ivan Illich. Dave, you might know him. I don't. But anyway, he made a great quote. He said, in a consumer society... There are inevitably two kinds of slaves, the prisoners of addictions, one, and the prisoners of envy, two. You think about this for a minute. I suspect that it's not cultures that have little that envies the big green-eyed monster. It's in cultures with much. It's in our culture. You think historically we're in one of the wealthiest nations the world has ever seen, certainly the most powerful. What do you think one of the greatest sins of our culture is? It's greed and it's envy. We who have much, we want more. This temptation is always with us. I live in a lovely house on a hill with a great view. And when I drive away from my house in the morning, I think, Lord, thank you. I feel so blessed. And then I go inspect somebody's bigger, newer, fancier house. And I come home and I'm thinking, Lord, why don't I live on that side of town? And why don't I have that acreage behind my house? And they're no smarter than me. They're no brighter than me. You know what I mean? I saw, many of you know Paul Pettit. Uh, Paul Pettit grew up in Topeka, Topeka Bible Church. Paul and his wife have written a book. And they're in the newspaper. And he's got these Christian heavyweights like Chuck Swindoll helping him with his book. And he's an associate dean at Dallas Seminary. And what's so special about Paul Pettit? He's not that great. I'm a better dad than Paul Pettit. Why? But he's writing the book. What's fair about that? You can go to, I think it's R.J. Cars this weekend, if you want, and buy his lousy book and have him sign it. Do <laughs> you get the picture? The, the truth is, any one of us, we're given all these things, and sometimes we make choices, but so much of life is determined by forces outside of us. 
We've got a faithfulness issue, which we'll look at in a minute. But we're dealt a hand. We're given a role in life. And some people have more than us, and some people have less. Some people have newer, some people have older. And in our culture, where wealth and affluence are all around us, there's always the temptation for this envy and this greed. And Proverbs said, and Shakespeare said, and we're going to see that the end of greed and envy is destruction. When you set your eyes to take what God has not given you, the end is always destruction. Let me give you a brief illustration of this. We were listening to J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings last week, and it reminded me of this. And if you've read the book, great. And if you don't, brief description, there's a slimy, crawly creature in the story named Gollum. And Gollum, for many years, possessed a ring of power that extended his life. But it corrupted him, and it made him evil. And then he lost it. And the little hobbit from Bag End, Frodo Baggins, now has this ring of power. And he and Gollum hook up along the trail to take the ring back to the place it was forged in Sauron's enemy lands and destroy it so that his power is destroyed. And during their trek back, Frodo warns Gollum. He says, you're in danger. Gollum says, I understand, but I'm willing to do all this thing because I'm a good guy and I'm going to help you out. And Frodo says, no, that's not it. You have a particular danger because of your lust, your greed, and your envy for this ring. And he says, if you don't be careful, it will destroy you, your desire, your attempt to regain this ring. It'll destroy you. And at the climax of the book, If you've not read it, I'm sorry, I'm giving it away. If at the climax of the book, Sam Gamgee, Frodo's helper, and Sam have climbed Mount Doom and they've made it into the crack of doom itself, into this mountain, and the crack, and there's the lava, the boiling pit underneath, and Frodo's supposed to throw the ring in and destroy it. And as he's up there deciding what to do, Gollum rejoins him. They'd shaken him for a while, He knocks Sam down. He runs up to the edge. And there's Frodo getting ready. In fact, he's put the ring on, and Gollum jumps on him. And they fight. And Gollum, with his sharp teeth, reaches out and takes one big bite and bites Frodo's finger off. And then we see Gollum holding up the finger with the ring in it. His envy, his greed, his lust are all satisfied now. He's got the ring, and he's jumping and dancing and screaming for joy. And he takes one step too far, and he falls screaming into the crack of doom and is consumed with his precious, the last word, out of his mouth. What a climax. What an end of the story. But that's what envy and greed and the lust to take this thing back did to Gollum. In the end, it destroyed him. It destroyed him. As we know in this story that we're in today, destruction is the end always of envy and greed. Envy always brings bad fruit. And you know, sin always brings death. There's no way around it, no matter what sin it is. Envy and greed is what we're talking about today, but lust, I mean, you name it. Self, anything that's, that's sought to satisfy ourselves only always brings death. There is a remedy for envy. And in a word, it is contentment, contentment. You know, if you're eaten up, if your desires are greedy, lustful, envious, 
whether it's just for your sake or in contrast, as it is in our story, with what someone else has been given. You're, you're eaten up inside. You're, you're not at peace. It's a wretched way to live. The solution is contentment. It's contentment. Listen to what Paul told his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. These are verses that our men's group has memorized recently. Paul is telling Timothy about pastors, church leaders, elders who are in ministry for a dollar, for what they can get out of it. And he says to Timothy that uh, godliness is a means of gain if it's accompanied by contentment. He says we brought nothing into the world, it certainly can take nothing out. And he says, bottom line, if we have food and covering with these, we should be content. If you have a roof over your head, a shirt on your back, and something to eat, you have the essentials of life, and you should be, Paul says, content. Now listen to this. This is envy, this is greed, this is lust. He says, but those who want to get rich, those who want what they weren't given, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, a trap. They think I'm going to get something. No, they're going to be gotten by something. They're going to be snared. It says many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. This lustful, self-seeking, greed, envy, it just destroys. You don't get something, you're had. He continues, the love of money, and insert here for our sakes in Daniel 6, envy, greed, the desire for these other things not given you, is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, wanting what God's given someone else and not me, have wandered from the faith. This is so graphic. It says, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows or griefs. If I gave you a knife and said, stab yourself, you'd think I was crazy. Paul says, when you and I latch on to envy, greed, lust, the desire for wealth in itself, he says it's as good as if we take a knife and we just stab ourselves through. Emotionally, spiritually, you die. You're killing yourself when you hold on to these kinds of sins, to any sins, these ones specifically, because we're looking at them this morning. He tells Timothy, in contrast to that, to envy, lust, the love for money, he says, flee these things. Run away from them. They're trouble. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And gentleness is this quality, I think often misunderstood. It doesn't mean we're mamby-pamby. Gentleness or meekness in the New Testament means we don't latch on to things not given us. It means we're content with what we're given. It says of Jesus, he was meek. In fact, it says, come to me, the meek one, and you'll find rest for your souls. We've got to lay down, lay sin down to be able to find life, to be meek, to be gentle. And then Paul's experience, he wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 4, and they'd sent him some money. And he thanked them for it. But he said, I want you to know that I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He says, I know how to get along with little or humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Daniel was in prosperity, but he wasn't consumed by it. He said, in every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. And he says, the conclusion is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. For Paul, he says, look, you gave me this money and I'm thrilled and thank you, but I just want you to know 
I've chosen to be content whether I have lots or nothing because I've got Christ. And Hebrew says this elsewhere that we're to be content because Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the thought there is interesting. Jesus says, you've got me, you can be content. You've got me, you can be content. So with that as a backdrop, think of what we're saying to the Lord when we fix our heart, our affection, our emotions, enviously, greedily, lustily on other things he hasn't given us. We're telling the God of the universe, Jesus, who spoke the worlds into existence, he's not enough. Lord, you're okay, but I really want that shiny new car. I want that bigger house, that nicer job, blonder hair, slimmer waist, whatever. That he's not enough. He's not enough. Paul said Jesus was enough. I can be content. I can be content. The bottom line is with envy, things and position become your God and destruction is the end. That's what you get. With contentment, When you choose contentment, God remains your God. Joy, peace, and righteousness are your experience. Put them in your hands. Weigh them out. Which would you want? Which would you choose? Hopefully, it would be said of you or I that we shunned enviness, greed, any of those sins that we were known as being content, whether that was to others or certainly to the Lord. So envy, the end is always destruction, like any sin. Contentment, the end is righteousness, peace, and joy. Look at the second half of verse 4. This half verse of 4 and 5, I love these verses because they describe Daniel. If you're a businessman, I've I've often thought this book is one of the greatest books uh, for anyone in business of any, any sort. You can read Proverbs has lots to say about doing right and how to be successful and prosperous. Daniel's this character sketch, though, of a guy who was so successful, but his life didn't hinge on that kind of success. Listen to what it says about Daniel. You've got these envious guys. They don't want Daniel to have that little bit higher step or position of authority. They're going to pull him down. So what do they do? They're looking for a ground of accusation. And it says in the second half of verse 4, but they could find no ground of accusation no evidence of corruption because he was faithful and no negligence falling down on the job, no negligence, no corruption, no taking, no doing things he shouldn't was to be found in him. These men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it with regard to the law of his God. If someone took a fine-tooth comb through your life and through mine, would they find evidence for accusation? Daniel is just, his, he's sterling. He's sterling. And it says no ground of accusation, no negligence, no failure on one hand, no corruption, no positive evil on the other. They said if we're going to be able to get him, it's got to be through his God and his religion. So, Daniel has a reputation. Daniel is known to all these guys as someone who will never do the wrong thing and who will always do the right thing by his God. That's his reputation because it's true. Someone said reputation is what others think of you and character is what you know of yourself. Well, for Daniel and hopefully for you and I, they're the same thing. They're the same thing. We should be on the outside what we are 
on the inside and vice versa. So they go through Daniel's ministry with a fine-tooth comb and they find nothing. And they resort to this thought, well, if we're going to get him, it's got to be related to his God. And there again, not just faithful in business, but they know that whatever the cost, Daniel will serve his God. They know it. They know his habits. They know how he lives. And as you know through the rest of the story, it's exactly what he does. They know they can get him because they know he'll be faithful to his God. So that will be the snare they set for him. Now, if you think about Daniel, sometimes it's easy to look at others who are successful or have been faithful and say, well, that's easy for them. But think about Daniel. Remember that he is serving a foreign power and a foreign pagan king. And he could think, I don't want these guys to succeed. I'm not, do, I'm not going to do a good job. I'm going to fall down on the job a little bit. He's living in a country he does not want to live in. Remember when he prays, as we'll see later, he's always facing Jerusalem. He doesn't want to be here. We saw at the end of chapter 5, wealth isn't even a big deal to Daniel. You say, well, what's his motivation? This guy is faithful to the nth degree. What's his motivation? He understood that he was under God's authority and that his faithfulness in the end was not to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Belshazzar, not to Darius or Cyrus. It was to God himself. He also understood that God had commanded him to be faithful. Remember Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah from Israel sent a letter to the Jews, including Daniel, in Babylon. And he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. In its welfare, you will have welfare. Daniel understood that to be faithful, to be a faithful servant and steward to these kings, meant to honor God. He was honoring God in this faithful ministry and service to these kings. That was the bottom line. This is absolutely consistent with Daniel throughout this book. He's always been the same thing. In verse 8, chapter 1, he drew the line in the sand and said, Lord, I'm going to remain faithful no matter the cost. And in chapter 6, that's at the beginning of his life, probably in his late teens, maybe early 20s. Here he is, probably in his 80s, same thing. He's chosen the same faithfulness throughout all of his life. Colossians 3, written 500 years later, Paul says to slaves, In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men, not just making a show of obedience on the outside, but you're to serve your masters with sincerity of heart, fearing God. You serve them out of your fear for God himself. And it says, whatever you do, do your work heartily or with a full heart, as for the Lord, not just or rather than for men. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Daniel lived this out. So Daniel looks at the kings. Remember, he served good kings and bad. He's been here a long time. He was faithful to every king and to two kingdoms because he was always being faithful to God. Just like Colossians 3 says. He wasn't just being a man pleaser. He was a God pleaser. So that in doing a good job at work and being faithful at work, he was consistent because he always sought to please God himself. And you know, if that's your attitude and mine, it doesn't matter what we're doing. 
It doesn't matter where we're at. Every one of us can be faithful with what God's commissioned us to do. So if we're a ruler with Daniel, or if we're a housekeeper, if we have this attitude, we can always be successful. We can always be faithful. And Christ, the Lord, can always reward us. That's the bottom line. What a contrast. You've got these guys who have wealth galore. These are the most powerful men in the country, in the kingdom, and they want a little more. Envy, it's going to destroy them. And then you've got Daniel. He's like them. He's got power, wealth, prestige, honor. But for him, none of that is the issue. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to God is the issue. And he's delivered, as Proverbs says in the end, and they're destroyed, as Proverbs says in the end. But he chose faithfulness. It makes me ask myself, and this is every day, not only can you and I be tempted with envy or greed, but every day we have the choice to be faithful. And it doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what home you live in. It doesn't matter what school you go to. Your attitude and mine should be this Colossians 3, that we're going to honor the Lord in whatever we do. We're going to be faithful. What is your reputation and mine? Those who know you, your spouse, your kids, your relatives, your neighbors, your extended family, if they look at you, if they look at your life or mine, will they say like Daniel, he never does wrong. We can't get him that way. There's no corruption in him. He doesn't fall down on the job on one hand. He always does the right thing on the other hand. Faithful at work. Faithful in doing the things whether you're seen or not. And then also faithful to God. This is a guy who will always do the right thing. This is a guy whose life, this is a woman, a girl, a boy, whose life is characterized by faithfulness. These things show up. You know, in the end, somebody, there's a little saying, you make choices now, something, I'm forgetting it, but the choices then make you. You and I choose every day what kind of a person we're going to be, and then we become it. Then we become it. So today and tomorrow, what kind of choices are we making relative to faithfulness? Are we serving our employer, our spouse, our children, our parents, the folks at church, the neighbors, etc.? Are we serving them out of fear of God, out of faithfulness to God? You know, if we do that, there will never be anything to pull up. There will never be a ground of accusation. And might it be said of us that the only thing someone can accuse us of is faithfulness to do right. That they can count on us, like Daniel, to never do wrong, to always do right. What a great, great character sketch he is for us. Totally faithful, totally faithful. And it will deliver him in the end. In the end, we can choose like uh, Daniel's envious leaders to be full of envy. We can cave into these sins of greed and envy. We can live a life of discontent and suffer destruction. We're going to see that in one group. Or like Daniel, we can choose to make it our aim to honor God, live a life of contented thanksgiving to him, and allow him to reward us in the end. Every day we're making those choices. Every day we're making those choices. I think I've read this before, but let me close with a couple lines out of one of my favorite American poets, Henry Longfellow. He's got a poem, short poem, and I'll only read part of it, called The Builders. 
all are architects of fate working in these walls of time, some with massive deeds and great, some with ornaments of rhyme. Nothing useless is or low. Each thing in its place is best, and what seems but idle show strengthens and supports the rest. For the structure that we raise, time is with materials filled. Our todays and yesterdays are the blocks with which we build. Truly shape and fashion these. Leave no yawning gaps between. Think not because no man sees such things will remain unseen. In the elder days of art, builders wrought with greatest care each minute and unseen part for the gods see everywhere. Let us do our work as well, both the unseen and the seen. Make the house where gods may dwell beautiful, entire, and clean. There's always going to be someone with more, better, shinier, newer than you or I have. And envy is always a temptation. On the other hand, faithfulness today brings rewards tomorrow. Faithfulness is the path of peace and joy and righteousness. And whatever our role, if we're an ornament in the church, or if we're a pillar, if your role in life is to be a leader up top at the head of the heap or to be a servant somewhere down underneath, Christ, the Lord, holds us all accountable to the same standard. It's just be faithful. Just be faithful. God doesn't apologize for the role he gives you or I to play. He sovereignly designates. And he asks us one thing, just to be faithful. And, you know, it'll be worth it in the end. When you see him, nothing you've sacrificed, no sin you've avoided, no faithfulness you've kept with, Will you regret when you see him face to face and he rewards you? It will be worth it in the end when we see him. Let's pray. Lord, we have carnal natures that are just bent to evil to consume things on ourselves. Father, these things, these sins are always corrupting and destructive. And yet we're tempted to play with them like fire. Help us to wisely, Father, in the fear of you and Jesus in the love of you, leave behind the sinful impulses, cleave to you, hold on to you, die to ourself to live to you. And Lord, help us to cultivate and choose each day contentment, contentment with what you've given us and what you've made us. Help us choose each day to honor you by being faithful with what you've given us and where you've placed us. Might it be said of us, as it was of Daniel, that we would be found faithful, faithful to avoid the wrong things, faithful to honor you above all. Lord, let that be said of each one of us. Might it be true of us when we see you face to face. It's certainly in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen.